How did the Ku Klux Klan resurge with a vengeance in the 1920s? And what does it mean for hate groups today? Linda Gordon will join us to talk about her new book, The Second Coming of the KKK. What's it like to spend an entire year in space? Astronaut Scott Kelly will be here to discuss his memoir, Endurance. Which books made our 10 best books of 2017 and why? Editors here will discuss our favorites and the books that almost made the list. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Linda Gordon joins us now. She is a professor of history at NYU and a two-time winner of the Bancroft Prize. And her new book is called The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and the American Political Tradition. Linda, thanks for being here. I'm so pleased that you have me. So the the inclusion of the American political tradition, I assume you included that phrase very deliberately. Why? Yes, I did. Well, because I wanted people to understand that we have a long tradition of this kind of bigotry in the United States. Now, the Klan of the 1920s intensified it and spread it beyond previous boundaries. Mm -hmm. But I think we have that strand that sometimes remains relatively underground and sometimes appears above ground. So I wanted to situate it in a longer period. Well, well, we'll get to the obvious contemporary implications and parallels later. But let's situate this in the time period you're talking about in the 20s. It's called the second coming of the KKK. What was the first coming? And then there was a third coming, and I probably can argue a fourth <laughs> coming. But let's talk about those three waves first. The first clan was established in the South immediately after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It was allegedly a secret society, although I am quite sure, since a number of historians have shown, that plenty of people knew exactly who the Klansmen were. And it had one single purpose, and that was to see to it that the newly and freed slaves would be subject again to white legal supremacy and white economic domination. And Mm -hmm. they did that through violence. Over time, they lynched more than 4,000 people. And the first Klan was literally a terrorist group in the sense, the original sense of terrorism, meaning that its lynchings were not just directed at particular individuals, but were intended to intimidate. The second Klan was a very different animal. It, It continued to imagine itself as a continuation of the first clan. But very early on, starting in about 1920, its founders realized that going after African-Americans only would not have much traction in the North because there weren't very many African-Americans in the North at Mm -hmm. that time. Furthermore, it was a kind of backlash against the large waves of immigration that had been pouring into this country, most of whom were not Protestant. So the second clan directed its enmity against Catholics and Jews. It was mainly nonviolent, although there was some vigilante action. And also, unlike the first clan, it included women. Mm-hmm. First of all, it was a mass movement. The male membership was somewhere between three and five million people. The female membership, about one and a half million. And secondly, its primary strategy was electoral. They were very sophisticated at at getting out the vote. Not so secret at all. It was not the least bit secret. They advertised publicly in newspapers. They had spread placards all over, inviting people to meetings. They sent lecturers all over the country. I want to situate this a little bit in time just to get a sense of it. So the first wave was in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. It didn't end then. It overlapped with the second wave. Exactly. Exactly. And it continued its original strategy of violence. Mm -hmm. The second wave could be conceived of as a sort of new branch of the original one, but it came to vastly, vastly outnumber them. At what point does it die off and then the third wave begin? Or does it? The second clan rose very quickly and collapsed very quickly. I wish I could say that it collapsed because of a lot of protest movements, but that's not the case. It 
collapsed really due to internal corruption and scandals. It never died. There were continuing uh, members of of the Klan. Many of them in the 1930s went into neo-Nazi groups. But really, it shifted and merged in many ways into the white citizens' councils. And that could be called the Third Coming. These were councils created immediately after the Supreme Court's decision prohibiting a school segregation. Mm -hmm. And the white citizens' councils were developed to set up what were called segregation academies, private schools, so that their children did not have to go to school. So this was the 1950s and into the 60s, this third wave. Right. Then, of course, what we might call the forthcoming is what we're experiencing now, except it's important to keep in mind that right now the Ku Klux Klan is only one of many small, decentralized, white nationalist, alt-right groups. That's not exactly comforting, but uh, but good to keep in mind. Let's go back to the second wave. You talked about how immigration was obviously one major force that led to the second wave. Were there other things at work there? Yes. Immediately after the First World War, there was a period of heavy repression of left-wing dissenters, people mm-hmm. who had opposed the war, people who were socialists or anarchists, and a lot of them were deported. The Klan adopted that spirit in its claims that the United States was actually threatened by aliens mm-hmm. who were coming in to overturn the government. The Klan literally alleged that the Pope had plans for a coup in which the U.S. government would be seized by the Vatican. Some of these claims today probably seem absurd on their face. And what's actually particularly interesting here is how many people believed these seemingly absurd claims. The interesting thing is that the 1920s, in many people's minds, is, of course, a happy-go-lucky era of flappers, the jazz age, prohibition. And yet there's this whole other world going on, and it's happening in many pockets nationwide. So how do you reconcile those two realities? One thing I, I need to say, though it's an uncomfortable fact is that I think the Klan provided a lot of fun for its members. Mm-hmm. They had so many clubs, leisure activities, pageants, picnics, that a family could spend all of their leisure time within a Klan community. And secondly, the the local chapters, which the Klan called Claverns, they like to start every word with a KL, they were really taking the place of fraternal orders and sororal orders in which there was a lot of camaraderie. There was a lot of networking for businesses and for jobs. So it's wrong to think of the Klan as a kind of always angry. But on the other hand, its bigotry was expressed publicly, loudly, on the basis of something that is characteristic of all demagoguery, and that is building fear The anger against Catholics and Jews was fueled by these claims that they were really plotting. The Klan was a master of conspiracy theories. Just as the Catholics were plotting to literally seize the country, the Jews were using Hollywood in a deliberate attempt to undermine American morals by showing women in scanty clothing, by having risque plots. And in fact, they tried to get people to boycott movies, which was not at all successful. The movies were far too attractive for people to to boycott. It's true you have a combination of angry and fearful rhetoric with a very strong spirit of community, Mm -hmm. though an exclusive community, a community only for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So let's go to that Protestant part of it because I'm curious if the rise of the Klan at all coincided with the rise or the increased empowerment of various fundamentalist or evangelical communities, and if it was tied into that. The Klan's base was almost 100% evangelicals. The Klan did not have very much success among what we might call the mainline Protestant denominations, such as Episcopalians, Lutherans. One of the great strengths of the Klan were the Klan ministers. The Klan claimed to have 40,000 
ministers as members. It recruited them very deliberately. They were entitled to join the Klan without paying the very high initiation fee or dues. But even if the 40000 was an exaggeration, we know that thousands of ministers were lauding the Klan and their servants, encouraging people to join the Klan, publicizing Klan events, and repeating Klan ideology about the threat to the country and to Protestantism from these alien groups. You mentioned ministers, but that was not the only position of power that open clans people held at that time, right? There were clan mayors. To what extent did, did they gain a political foothold during this period? Their political football was really enormous, and I think if if nothing else, that was the most important thing I wanted to get across in this book. The Klan elected 11 governors, 45 congressmen, and those were people who ran publicly as Klan members. Wow, what states were those? sympathizers, particularly Indiana, Oregon, Washington, mainly Midwestern and Western states. So really runs up against what we think of as the Ku Klux Klan being a kind of Southern organization to think of Washington and Oregon as having Klan governors. Exactly. And for example, Oregon, which happens to be my home state, one of the things that's remarkable is the intensity of that bigotry in a state where there were almost no Catholics and Jews, let alone other people of color. But furthermore, in addition to these federal or or state high offices, there were thousands of very local counties, city, town, state officials who were Klan's people. But they had a major electoral success at the federal level and in getting sympathetic laws passed. There's some really surprising examples of of the extent the Klan's reach in places where I think most Americans don't imagine them. One of them in particular struck me. Anaheim, home of now Disneyland, was called Klanaheim. Yes. Why there? The reasons for that particular area of strength may have had to do with an unusually charismatic lecturer. It may have had to do with the fact that this was a time when almost an increasing number of the people who worked in the vast agricultural fields of California were Mexicans who were doubly stigmatized because they were not only not white, but they were Catholic. But Anaheim was not alone. For example, in Madison, Wisconsin, which we now think of as a very liberal place. The Klan was a registered fraternity. And the police chief said, most of my my employees are Klansmen. Another important thing about the Klan, just as there were many ministers, probably the single largest occupation in the Klan were law and order officials, police and sheriffs. Of course, I have to ask you about the contemporary reverberations and the really, it seems, obvious parallels in certain ways. I know that I imagine there are limitations to those parallels between our current moment, what we saw in in Charlottesville and elsewhere around the country. Was that apparent to you? I mean, I don't know what the timing of, of your work on this was, but I'm assuming that's apparent now. Yes. However, it's not a replica. There's a wonderful adage that actually has been falsely attributed to Mark Twain, which says, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. The bigotry is very flexible. For Mm -hmm. example, fairly soon after the 1920s, anti-Catholicism began to recede. Although as late as 1960, when John Kennedy was running for president, the same allegations against him were made, i.e. that a Catholic could not be a patriotic American because of their loyalty to to the Pope. But one of the things it has in common is, is the issue of immigration. The Klan's biggest legislative victory was the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act, the first time the U.S. government restricted immigration, and it did so on the basis of setting quotas for different groups. Mm -hmm. And these quotas enacted into law exactly the Klan's hierarchy of who were the superior and desirable groups and who the people who had very small quotas were the undesirable groups. So it's not surprising that immigration, once again, seems to people to be threatening. It shows, first of all, the flexibility of the targets, that you can change targets but have the 
same spirit there. But it also shows something else that I think is remarkable, and that is the claims that are somehow impervious to the facts. The claims in the 1920s that immigrants were stealing American jobs were absolutely false. And that's pretty much the case today. I think the other thing that you have in common with this is a kind of demagoguery that takes people's grievances and blames them on subordinate groups. Mm -hmm. They always blame downward. They never blame upward. So they're blaming these poor new immigrants for their problems rather than Wall Street or the large corporations. And that's happening again today. And that part keeps repeating itself. I'm just going to end by quoting from our review of the book, which was by Clay Risen, who is an editor on the op-ed page here at The Times. He says, they say the job of an anthropologist is to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Something similar goes for the historian. I can think of few books that accomplish this task as well as Gordon's. In her telling, the second clan is at once utterly bizarre and undeniably American. The 2010s may not be the 1920s, but for anyone concerned with our present condition, the second coming of the KKK should be required reading. So that's quite an endorsement. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you again for being here. The book is called The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and the American Political Tradition by Linda Gordon. Scott Kelly, astronaut and author, joins us now to talk about his new book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I think my favorite story you write about in this book is that you were inspired by books to become an astronaut in the first place. What were those books? So I was kind of this atypical kid that became an astronaut because I was a poor student. I couldn't pay attention. I spent more time looking out the window or looking at the clock, trying to will it to run faster to get me out of the classroom than I ever did paying attention. And I, you know, I think if I was in school today, I'd be a kid with ADD or ADHD. And I went to college and I was the same way. I couldn't pay attention. Impossible for me to do that. And then one day I just happened to go into the college bookstore on campus and uh, not to buy a book, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe gum or something. And I saw this book on the shelf, had a cool title, red, white, and blue, looked like I should pick it up. And I did. And I read it, and it was The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. And just, the, you know, the way Tom writes, that captured my attention, and it made me think, you know, I have traits in common with these guys mm-hmm. at the time that became astronauts. And I thought, you know, if I could solve my one thing of paying attention and being a better student, maybe I could fly airplanes or even fly in space someday. So did that motivate you then as a student to pay more attention, to be more diligent in your studies? That was my inspiration. Not Mm -hmm. having read that book, I think I would not, I know I would not be sitting here today talking to you. It wasn't a change that I made overnight. It took years for me to teach myself how to become a better student and focus and uh, be able to prioritize. And, you know, fast forward 18 years later from the day I read that, the book, The Right Stuff, almost to the day I was flying in space for the very first time. Uh, as an NASA astronaut. I mean, the other very remarkable thing about your whole trajectory, of course, is that your twin brother, Mark, also an astronaut. I mean, whose idea was it first? How did that happen? You know, we had a different path. When we were uh, like in the eighth grade, my dad sat the two of us down, him and I, and explained that, you know, we were not good students and he was going to start, you know, encouraging us towards a, a vocational career or mm-hmm. education, a later career. And my brother thought, well, I want to go to college. Wait a minute. And he immediately started getting straight A's. Me, on the other hand, had no recollection of this conversation whatsoever because there probably was a squirrel running outside the window. But then, you know, we were together as test pilots in the Navy, and we both applied to the space program independently of one another. But just kind of like every Navy test pilot does of that era when the space shuttle was flying, And we were both fortunate enough to get interviews, and we did well enough, and we got selected. Were you competitive with each other? Never with each other, only uh, sometimes it may seem that way because we're joking. Right. um, But it's all just in jest. You don't say, like, well, I spent longer in space than you did, and... (laughs) 
Well, I did. <laughs> you can't argue with that. I mean, you set two records. You probably have set more, but having spent the most cumulative hours in space and then also the longest amount in space for an American astronaut. Was that the goal of this mission? What was the what was the idea behind having you spend a full year in yeah, space? Yeah, so the idea behind me spending a year there and with my Russian colleague, uh, Mikhail Kornienko, is that someday, whether it's sooner or later, but someday we're going to venture to Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. And right now, we have this International Space Station has a uh, an incredible capability to do science of mm-hmm. all different types. And there's a lot of things we need to know to go to Mars or elsewhere that we can learn very well on the International Space Station while we still have it. So what kinds of things were they looking at in terms of the effects of that length of time on human being. I'm assuming they were looking at it physiologically, psychologically, socially, perhaps. Yeah. So when you're in space for, you know, whether it's short or long periods of time, there are physiological effects, negative physiological effects, generally. Those are bone loss, muscle loss, mm-hmm. um, kind of like we age, but at a very accelerated rate. Um, Why is that? Because our, I think our bodies are just really smart, and they recognize in this environment when they are not required to oppose gravity. Mm-hmm. That they don't, we don't need them anymore, and it just gets rid of the calcium and muscle mass if you uh, if you don't exercise. Right, I mean, we you do have to a do a lot of exercise, right? A lot of exercise to prevent that, and uh, so there are those things. There's uh, effects on our immune system. There's a negative effect, whether it's from the stress or the microgravity, or just the fact that you know your body senses this is not normal. There's structural changes in our eyes that we think is due to the fluid shift mm-hmm. as. In the absence of gravity, all this fluid, blood, lymphatic fluid, whatever, just kind of redistributes itself all over your body, and it makes your head swell and puts pressure on your the structures of your eyes. What about your ears and your vestibular system? And well, your vestibular system is kind of messed up from the get go, but uh, you know because there's no uh, gravity that you can sense, so it doesn't know what way up and, and down is, and uh, because there really isn't any, and uh, that's why people you know, get space sickness and also why people get sick sometimes when they come back from space because then their vestibular system is provoked by gravity very, very rapidly, cognitively, mentally, psychologically, whatever you want to call it, our ability to concentrate or, you know, just our general mental health can be affected by being in space for long periods of time. So, you know, when we go to Mars someday, these are things we have to understand better. And we have the capability now to do research on the space station with some very, uh, you know, technologically advanced uh, methods of measuring bone loss, muscle loss, taking our blood, doing uh, genetic research. Mm-hmm. We do, which was a study between my brother Mark and I. Very convenient to have twins for studies like these. Too. Yeah, for this one, especially a guy that they had scientific data on since 1995, mm-hmm. since we interviewed. So they had a very long, you know, history chain of of his health, and they could compare us together and look at uh, changes in us, mostly at a genetic level, as I would spend more and more time in space. And we actually found some interesting things uh, so far, even though, you know, most of the experiments are still doing the data reduction Mm -hmm. and writing research papers. They've already found some stuff that's pretty interesting. Like what? Well, our telomeres, for instance. Telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes. And as we age, they get shorter. The ends get shorter and more frayed. And the hypothesis was that me in space, a lot of radiation, stressful environment, other factors maybe we don't even understand. The hypothesis was, was my telomeres will get shorter compared to my brothers on Earth, and the result was the exact opposite. So mine got better wow. compared to his, and uh, they're going to try to understand why. What's the theory? Eh, maybe it's clean living, exercise. Right. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't as stressed out up there as maybe people thought. But it's interesting research when – your result is the exact opposite of your hypothesis. They also learned that my genes, like gene expression, how physically your genes inside your body express themselves was changed significantly. A lot of genes much turning on and off much more rapidly than they do on Earth. And that even continued when I got home for a while. Right. 
Now, and this can be a good thing or a bad thing. It just depends on what gene it is. You know, bad genes can turn on or bad genes can turn off or vice versa. So they don't know exactly, you know, what this means, but our, my body at least was doing some uh, stuff in uh, the genetic realm that was not expected. So the previous times you'd been there for up in space for how long, the most? Um, the most was 159 days, mm-hmm. and uh, coming back after a year was much different. How so? Well, I just had, uh, you know, more soreness uh, in my bones and muscles, but I also had things that I really didn't have the previous time. Like I had my legs would swell when I significantly. Hmm. When I would stand up, I could feel the blood rushing out of the top of my body down into my legs. I could see my legs swelling. Wow. I was nauseous for a week, had some flu-like symptoms I hadn't experienced previously. I had uh, rashes and hives anywhere my skin had touched anything. Mm-hmm. And that lasted a couple of weeks. So clearly there is some in the curve of, you know, physical symptoms. There is definitely a, a change there somewhere between, you know, six months and a year. Now the question is, you know, it, does this continue like exponentially or does right. it level off? It seems like the bone loss had leveled off. Like I didn't lose twice as much bone because I was up in space for twice as long. The Mm -hmm. same thing with the muscle mass. But I think we understand that better and the exercise helps us. But other things, um, you know, the the jury's out and uh, we'll continue to look at this. And do you still feel anything different? Any? Yeah, physically I have no uh, symptoms. Mm -hmm. I still have uh, changes in my the structure of my eyes, but it doesn't affect my vision. Mm-hmm. And I would suspect I probably have some effects of all the radiation we get, as do a lot of astronauts. And hopefully we'll never find out that that will cause us any problems. What's it like? What was it like those first few moments when you're back on Earth after a year? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, you when they open the hatch and fresh air rushes inside and it Smells like the first time you've breathed fresh air in your whole life in the capsule. You know, gravity kind of gives you a beat down. How do you mean a beat down? Like, what does that feel like? Without living in gravity for a year, you weigh, you feel like you weigh like a thousand pounds at first. (laughs) You're dizzy, you're nauseous. It sounds, in a way, like the effects coming back were harder than the effects of being in space. Yeah, I would say so, you know, the physical effects. You know, there's certain discomforts you have um, living in space for a long period of time that in some cases never really go away. At least I had never experienced them going away completely like, you know, a little bit of a, you know, full head and your head feels a little bit, uh, there's too much fluid in it, that kind of thing. There's the carbon dioxide levels on the space station are high, mm-hmm. and it affects people different ways, but there can be, you know, headaches and burning eyes and congestion. So there are things on the space station that, you know, you have to live with living there for, for long periods. But if you're just looking at, like, a, you know, a brief moment in time, a couple of weeks, yeah, coming back is definitely, for me, harder than going. And were you sleeping? You said you never slept better when you got back. What is, what is it like sleeping up there? You know, I think people fantasize that sleeping in space would be the greatest thing, right? Because you're just floating there, right? No pressure on you. But, you know, there are some advantages. If that, you have like shoulder pain or I got pains all over that. Being in space alleviates those pains. Mm -hmm. But then there are other things that uh, you have symptom-wise that are a result of being in space. Your back may hurt differently because now your spine's elongated. You may be congested because of the fluid shift and your head doesn't feel clear. The space station is noisy, so you have to contend with the noise. When you close your eyes at times, depends on your altitude. If you're at the Hubble altitude, when my first flight was on Hubble, you see these, this all the time. But space station altitude, sometimes you see these flashes of cosmic rays when you're trying to go to sleep, hitting your eyeball. Wow. Radiation. And it's... Uh, it's a little bit of distraction when you're trying to go to sleep. It's also distraction when you realize not only did that cosmic ray just hit my eyeball, it also went through my brain. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) but the biggest thing that makes sleeping hard in space is that on Earth, sitting here or walking around, we are opposing gravity all day. And then when we get home, you sit on the couch, you're more comfortable. You lie in the bed, you're even more comfortable than Mm -hmm. we were on the couch. But in space, when it's time to go to sleep, basically you just close your eyes. I mean, because 
whether you're working on a computer or an experiment or watching TV or eating, whatever you're doing except exercising, you're generally not expending any energy. You're in this like fetal floating position and when it's time to go to sleep, you're still in that same position, no change. All the signifiers are on. Yeah. Well, I've been focusing on on more of the negative aspects, but I'm curious if there was – if there were things that you saw that you experienced in a year in space that you didn't get on those shorter missions, things that you grew to appreciate. Looking at the Earth and the, you know, the fragility of the atmosphere. I mean, our atmosphere looks like a thin film over the surface. Has it uh, changed since you've started flying? The atmosphere hasn't. I mean, it's always thin. Yeah. Um, what I will say changed that and this is, you know, a subjective thing because I didn't measure, you know, I don't have data to support this. But, you know, it seems like certain parts of the world have more pollution than when I first started flying in 1999. Uh, certain parts of uh, like over India and, and eastern China almost mm-hmm. always covered in pollution. The and rain, that's really visible from space. Oh, absolutely visible. Uh, more fires over Earth. So California burns a lot these days. Yes. Right? And that smoke is visible all across, you know, you could see that smoke going all across to New York mm-hmm. from a fire in, in California. Deforestation, definitely notice that over, you know, the 16 years I was flying in space. So there's that perspective you get on the environment and the atmosphere, weird storms, larger storms. There's also, you know, the orbital perspective you get from looking at generally a beautiful planet. If there was one thing that you could share, some kind of experiential thing from being up in space with people who are down here and are never going up, if you could in some way bottle it or yeah. capture it or impart it to people, what would it be? Well, my career at NASA spanned uh, 20 years. I had the privilege of flying in space four times to, on a Hubble mission to repair that telescope, which has done amazing things and given us incredible insight into, you know, you know, our role in the universe, I mm-hmm. think, which is very small. I was the commander of the space shuttle. I f- was the commander of the space station on three different expeditions on two flights, especially with regards to the space station. The fact that we built this million-pound structure mm-hmm. while flying around the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour in a vacuum in extremes of temperatures, plus or minus 270 degrees, put these modules together like uh, like soda cans, but giant, big space station modules, different rooms, mm-hmm. connected them together, some of which had never touched each other before on Earth. They had to fit perfectly together in space and constructed by uh, this international partnership of 15 countries, different languages, different cultures, different technical ways of doing things. How this space station, building this and operating it for the last 17, 18 years now, is I'm convinced the hardest thing we've ever done. And if we can do this, we can do anything. I mean, if we want to go to Mars, we can go to Mars. If we want to cure cancer and we put the resources behind it, we can do that. Want to fix the problems with our environment, challenges in our country right now, Mm -hmm. which there are too many to count. You know, after spending a year in space, I was absolutely inspired that, you know, if we can dream it, we can do it. Well, it is an honor to have you here. We have lots of exciting guests on the podcast, but you are the only astronaut so far and probably perhaps the only astronaut author we will have here. So it's a true pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. The book, again, is called Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery by Scott Kelly, and it's been on our bestseller list now for seven weeks and counting. Thank you again. We're going to talk for a moment about our best books. And before we do, I will with a little drum roll here. These are our 10 best books of 2017. In Fiction, Autumn by Ali Smith, Exit West by Mohsen Hamid, Pachinko by Minjin Lee, The Power by Naomi Alderman, Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. And then in nonfiction, The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us by Richard Prum, 
Grant by Ron Chernow, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America by James Foreman Jr., Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder by Caroline Fraser, and Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood. We won't talk about all of them, but I want to welcome some of my colleagues here at the Book Review, and we will talk about some of them and also about some of our favorites that nearly made the list but didn't. So joining us now, Greg Coles, Maria Russo, and Gal Beckerman. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank Pamela. All right. Let's start with fiction and talk about a few of our favorites. Greg, do you want to start us off? Sure. Why don't I start off by talking about Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing because uh, I just read that one. And what I want to say that I really responded to in it, um, I, on the surface, it is a basic road trip novel. It's a mother and her friend driving her two young children to visit their father and the friend's boyfriend in prison in Mississippi um, where the father is being released. The mother is black. The father is white. He's been sentenced on a drug crime, and the mother and the friend are addicts and, and in fact, uh, make a stop along the way to pick up some meth that they're planning to sell. So um, it's this very kind of impoverished story of addiction um, and the danger that the children are in. But um, what has grabbed me in the book from the start, really, is all of the sibling relationships in it. Interwoven in that story of the road trip, um, you get the story um, in italics of the children's grandfather, the the mother's father, who is also raising these kids. Mm -hmm. And he served time in the same prison, Parchman, in Mississippi, back when he was a teenager with his brother. Um, and his brother went crazy subsequently. And you get the story of the the brothers there and um, what was essentially kind of slavery um, in prison at the time. Um, then you get the story of the mother and her brother who uh, was murdered in, in a very kind of racially motivated murder by some of his football teammates. And so you get the grief and and the lack of that sibling relationship. And then Jojo, who's essentially the, the main character of this book, it really has kind of chief responsibility for his younger sister, Kayla. And she clings to him almost as like a father figure. And you get this very tender relationship between the two of them. And so you see these siblings kind of protecting each other and just relying on on each other through the generations and how that plays out. Um, and it's um, she handles it beautifully at the same time that there's this kind of compelling narrative motion with the road trip and, and the danger that the kids are in through, um, through being with a, a drug-addicted mother. So um, it's, it's a story that has a lot of narrative drive to it, um, but also a lot of contemporary resonance um, with prison issues. It, it's very much um, kind of a, a fictional counterpart to locking up our own um, on the nonfiction side. And, you know, it, it looks at the the opiate crisis. It's, you know, it, it has a, a lot of play in contemporary culture, but it's it's um, also just telling a great story with great characters. So, um, so that's a, a book that, you know, really spoke to a lot of us in the book review this year. And also to the wider culture, it just won the National Book Award. Yeah, I thought her acceptance speech for the National Book Award was especially moving because she talked about how, you know, she had been told that stories, the stories she wanted to tell that readers weren't interested in, stories of poverty, stories of race, stories of people on the margins, stories from the South, and clearly those people were wrong, so it's <laughs> exciting to see such a positive response to the book. A few of the books, Greg, both of us read and especially liked, and we've talked about recently on the podcast a bit, The Power by Naomi Alderman is yeah. one. You edited the review uh, for that book. I remember I read that just about a month ago. I brought it with me to a literary festival in Madrid, and I read it on the strength of the review in our pages and just the premise at this, it, it's one of those books that lands and you think like, why didn't anyone think of this? It's a very high concept book in, in the kind of Hollywood sense of high, like it, it's got this one premise and that the premise is you flip the um, physical 
power relationship between men and women. Suddenly, instead of but men— the physical, ha- the sheer physical. And, yeah, and, and instead every- of men having the advantage because of their size and strength, women have the advantage because they can generate an electric force <laughs> that can kill men. <laughs> and so suddenly, um, through the generations, um, you see that play out, and, and you see women start to uh, gain the upper hand in society. It um, is— it, you know, like um, the Jesmyn Ward, uh, maybe more so than the Jesmyn Ward, um, it is another uh, novel with very much contemporary relevance, but also that's got this kind of crowd-pleasing, mm-hmm. um, real narrative element to it. One of the things that, you know, sometimes can frustrate me in a book is is when they op- they create a world, they open up all of these possibilities, and then the author makes their choices of where to take it. And part of you thinks, but there were so many other options. You could have done it this <laughs> way, or I wanted it to go that way. And I think that that, that actually is a strength in this book because it's it's almost bigger in a way than even the book itself because you it it, it opens up all of these possibilities that you can see that that you sort of start spinning out your own ways that it, that it could have gone out while still being very interesting in the direction that that Naomi Alderman herself chose. And then Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which you also... Uh, <laughs> I, I also assigned and, and edited the review for that one. Also, um, fairly traditional narrative uh, in terms of its um, the, the kind of approach that she takes. It's the um, multi-generational family epic, um, but also very contemporary relevance. Um, it's set um, in Japan, but um, follows uh, generations of a Korean family in Japan. So it looks at the Koreans as outsiders and kind of um, discrimination, racial, ethnic discrimination against Koreans in Japan. Obviously, it gets into Korean culture, which is very much on everyone's minds yeah. these days. I loved especially the first half of that book because it, it was so unfamiliar to me. That's, um, it's interesting. Gal and I were just talking about mm-hmm. that yesterday. That at, at the beginning, it almost feels um, fairy taleish. It's, it's yes. the other. It's it kind of is telling you about or things. folk taleish to oh, me. Folk taleish. Yeah, that, that's better. It's also because of the historical difference, you can't kind of compare it to reality. You're not taken out of the story. You can be completely enclosed in that time period. Which yeah. it's sort of early 20th century Korea, and then moves and over to, to Japan. Japan. And I I know very little about Korea. I'd never been there. I was completely unfamiliar with sort of what a peasant's life would be like in what was then not North Korea, but became North Korea. And then I thought what made the book so resonant now is that it deals with themes that we're dealing with around the world about immigration and refugees and uh, identity and xenophobia. So that's Pachinko. And then it kind of brings us naturally to Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. Yeah, also immigrants and refugees. Um, and like the power, um, it, it takes kind of a speculative turn because the the refugees in this book who – I think it never identifies what country they're from, but it, it feels like it could be Syria um, – or, you know, a country at war with itself. The refugees flee through these kind of magical doors that open and let them from one country into another. So they go to, you know, from where they are to Greece, to London, to America. It was that kind of magical time and space jumping that reminded me so much of Colson Whitehead's book from oh, last year, The Underground yeah, Railroad. It's a, a sort a of really comparison. interesting um, similarities between those two books. Let's talk about nonfiction. Maria, do you want to tell us about Prairie Fires? Well, I love this book. This is a very ambitious and long biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of, of course, The Little House on the Prairie books. But it's much more than that. It's a story about the American West and the settling of the American West by white people that clears up a lot of myths and introduces a lot of new ideas that I found really interesting about about farming, for example, about, you know, the the terrible economic and ecological toll of the farming methods that the white people brought that can kind of account for a lot of what happened to Laura Ingalls Wilder's family. Because, of course, the, this is a story of homesteading and a succession of tragedies and failures. And and then it also deals with how this great work of American literature was created out of those really terrible circumstances and, and clears up a lot of uh, ideas floating out, around out there about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, who was very much a collaborator and editor on the books. But I think what I love about this book is that you you never lose sight, Caroline Fraser never really loses sight of, of Laura Ingalls Wilder herself as 
the voice of these books. Um, but it's just incredibly ambitious and just sort of a tour through America from like 1860 to Laura Ingalls Wilder's death in the mid 20th century. All right, Gall, you have to tell us a little bit about the evolution of beauty because you were you were this was a book that you were very much behind. <laughs> you were the earliest um, proponent. You're saying a little bit about because you don't want me to go on too long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a book that was uh, I feel like it was, well, it was in a roundup of, of Darwin books that we had done earlier in the year. That's how we initially covered it. And it kind of popped out at me as something that seemed interesting. So I gave it a read. Um, and it was pretty fascinating. It's this, it's by this ornithologist, a guy who studies birds, Richard Prum. And it's this incredibly kind of impassioned and accessible defense of what was Darwin's other theory, the one that we know a lot less about. So we know about natural selection, which is how species evolved in relationship or to adapt to different environments. But the the other theory that got kind of ignored over time, or at least initially ignored and has been s- forgotten by people who are strict Darwinists, is sexual selection, which is what explains why we have a peacock, for example. Like, you know, there's no reason why there's the degree of ornamentation, the degree of variety that we have in nature. And sexual sexual selection is actually kind of a subversive theory because it says that the spe- the female mostly of the species is the one that kind of chooses based on aesthetics he calls it beauty which is like a human concept that he allows the animals to have um uh, other animals to have and based on uh, aesthetic preference the female of the species chooses what she likes among in the male um and that through a process of coevolution meaning that like the female chooses that in the male and the male evolves to kind of adapt to what she wants there is uh, the the crazy variety that we see in nature and so it's 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 both it's a very and the, initially this theory of darwin's was pretty was rejected by the victorians who couldn't stand the idea that like women or women women and females in the out in nature would have that much power over the evolution of of the various species but but he makes a very convincing case that it's the only way to explain things that 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 looking at natural selection by itself doesn't really give us the full picture i feel um, like it's great that he's an ornithologist because the all the examples that i can think of it's not just peacocks yeah. it's cardinals where the female right. is kind of dun brown or gray and right, the male right. is the the what you think right. of as that cardinal red right. it's you right. know that's in in birds it's often so it's, the yeah. males who are the showy yeah. Exactly. And what's fascinating about the book is he starts with, with birds and he builds his case with birds, but then he turns to humans mm-hmm. and he's, he explains all these things about our sexual features or, or just why humans are different from, you know, other primates that have to do with this idea of sexual selection of females kind of choosing the mates that, that are going to be more pleasing to them. So we did this last year on the podcast. I think it's become a kind of podcast exclusive where each of you can talk a little bit about the book that you wish had made it to the top 10, almost made it, perhaps a personal favorite that didn't make our 10 best, because what our listeners might not know is that it's really a collaborative process, but we have um, a a nice size staff here, and not everyone gets to have all of their favorites end up um, on the final list. So, Greg, why don't you start us off? Well, I I think it will surprise nobody who knows me that I would have loved to have seen George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo end up on on the fiction list. Um, It's his first novel, surprisingly, because George Saunders has such a big reputation, but he's really only been a story writer. Um, And this novel is very ambitious. It it tells the story, a little known episode or a a minor episode in Lincoln's life, but not a minor episode to him personally, where his 11-year-old son, Willie, died of what I guess was pneumonia. Um, And um, it is set in the night that after Willie has been buried and Lincoln is in the graveyard visiting him. But it, the way the book is structured, it's got this Spoon River anthology um, or oral history type feel where you get snippets of monologues that, um, from inhabitants of the you know, ghostly inhabitants of the graveyard. You get letters and, and histories from people who worked in the White House or historians, contemporary historians uh, of the day and, and also um, now looking back um, to, to piece together this story. And it is heartbreakingly sad at times in all the, the grief stuff and also just uproariously funny, the stories of, of how the ghosts ended up there and kind of uh, it builds to a theory of the afterlife that, you know, it's hard to to know if this is a theory that Saunders himself believes in, but it um, 
is a very philosophical book, mm-hmm. um, too, as, as it goes on. It's funny. Uh, that book, of course, won the Booker this year, the Man Booker Prize. And I was talking recently with an editor at one of our British counterparts, um, Literary Book Review in, in, in London. And we were talking about why we thought that possibly that book had resonated so much in, in England. England. Right. And one theory is that because there was the question of like, wow, a, a second American in a row, it, it's not their turn, darn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they got their, their, their winner last year um, with Paul Beatty, the sellout. But the theory was that this is a kind of America that the British like. <laughs> um, you know, it's it it's Lincoln, it's ghost stories, it's nostalgic, and it's about fathers and sons, and and this this that that there's a, a kind of Americanness to that particular story that they thought would appeal to the Brits, like a 19th century kind yeah. of Henry James type of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, Gall, what was your also ran? I really liked Maya Jasanoff's *The Dawn Watch*, which also just came out pretty recently, and she's a Harvard professor who wrote a book about Joseph Conrad. But it's but it's an unusual book in that it's 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 both kind of a biography of Conrad, but using Conrad's life and his works to say something about the first era of globalization at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. And she follows the narratives of his book to basically make an argument that Conrad was kind of ahead of the curve and saw these big changes that were happening, big migrations, changes, technological changes, and that his books are really kind of a reflection of the anxieties that come along with all of that and some of the promise of it. And it's it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing book in that in that it combines both kind of literary criticism but these other features, you know, of of, of biography and of um and of kind of a deep research into the places. She also interestingly went and traveled to a lot of like she traveled along the Congo. She took this kind of trans transatlantic trip into the Indian Ocean to kind of experience what it was like to see the world from from a boat at that period of time. Yeah, I was I have a fantasy of of sorry, never mind. I mean I when I read Conrad, I always I always feel that longing that um it would be so hard to replicate the life that he lived, mm. um, especially for a woman. You know, there were not many women in the merchant marine, and obviously that period is long past. So that's, I think that's interesting that yeah. she got to at least approximate it in yeah. her in her travels. Maria, you have a novel I know that you well, that you wished had been there. <laughs> I thought Matthew Clams, Who is Rich, would have been a fantastic dark horse choice for the book review this year because it's it's not the kind of um, highest brow, shall we say, literary book. It's a dark comedy of manners. It seems like it's just sort of sending up contemporary life and contemporary mores. But I think if you go under the surface, there's some really powerful emotional work that's being done in that book. And there's a lot of um, social critique. You know, so it, I'll tell you that the, the big story is it's a it's a guy who goes off, who is a writer whose wife earns most of the money in their marriage. Um, and he takes care of the kids, and he has one big thing happening in his career, which is that every year he gets to go teach at a writer's conference for the weekend. And while he's there, he conducts uh, an ongoing affair with a very wealthy woman, a one percenter. And so the the novel is one summer he's back there, and they 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 start up again their affair. So uh, there's just it's so funny and it's so dark, and yet it's saying some really important things I think about shifting features of our culture that have to do with gender and power and money and love and marriage that I think um, can be can be really revelatory and painful all the while that you're laughing. So I thought that book would have been a would have been a good choice for us. I, I think when I talked about it on the podcast before, I said that I'd never read a book that was so depressing and so funny, like on exactly. every page. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like that, depressing and funny. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some notes from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's going on? So there was an interesting book released this week by Sam Shepard, who is best known as a playwright. And, of course, as everyone knows, he died this past July at his home in Kentucky. He was 73. And at the time he died, few people knew, apart from his family and closest friends and collaborators, that he was suffering for many months before from Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS, which causes paralysis. Mm -hmm. While in the months 
that he was getting treated for this, and as his condition was worsening, he was actually working on a final book, which was released this week by Knopf, titled Spy of the First Person. And what's so fascinating about the book is that while it does draw on many of the themes that have preoccupied him throughout his career, it's really clearly him wrestling with this condition. It Mm -hmm. features a narrator who is describing this debilitating medical illness that he has and his paralysis and is addressing his children and sort of telling them things he wants them to know at the end of his life. So haunting. Yeah, it really is. And given how private he was in his life and writing, that he would take his final work and sort of use it to explore what he was going through was fascinating. And I was able to speak to his daughter, Hannah Shepard, who helped him write the book, basically because he was paralyzed. He couldn't write by hand anymore, which was how he preferred to write or use his typewriter. So she set up an audio recorder, and he was Mm -hmm. able to dictate the whole entire book. His sisters transcribed it. Their names are Sandy and Roxanne. And his two sons were involved, too, in helping, you know, get the manuscript to Knopf. And his friend, Patty Smith, the singer-songwriter, also helped him edit it and shape it, and she traveled to see him in Kentucky and and worked with him on it. So it was, you know, the people I spoke to who were involved said it was a really, while it was a sad thing to go through given what he was going through at the end of his life, it was sort of a positive experience that they were able to collaborate with Mm -hmm. him um, in this unusual way and basically facilitate the creation of a book when, you know, he couldn't do it on his own. So I I think it's an interesting coda to his entire career where, you know, he's published several works of fiction and this is sort of a final gift, I suppose, to his fans and readers. All right. So for our listeners, tell us again the title. The title is Spy of the First Person by Sam Shepard. All right, then. Thanks, Alexander. Thank you. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues, Greg Coles, John Williams, and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. So I think we'll focus mostly on what we're reading because on the bestseller list, there's not much news except two titles, Greg? As far as I can remember, there are just two new titles. One is an extension of the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan series. Clancy died in 2013, but immediately after his death, somebody who had been collaborating with him before his death continued the Jack Ryan series. That was Mark Graney. And then Putnam, uh, who published Tom Clancy, turned to other writers to kind of expand that series and continue them. And and so now the latest one has, has come out. A guy named Mark Cameron, who's a thriller writer in his own right, ha- has just written the latest Jack Ryan book. And that's on the list. So and Death and, Can't Stop Jack Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also a Danielle Steele book is um, also new on the list. Um, as far as I know, those are just the, the, the only two new titles, fiction or non. So people have have kind of settled into what their holiday book choices are going to be. Yeah, we'll see, um, you know, if that changes as they start buying books for other people. (laughs) And and speaking of continuity, you were reading, it looks like, a book that you were reading last week, Greg. No, uh, last week I was still reading Jesmyn Ward's Sing Unburied Sing. This week I, I... I'm reading Joan Silber's new novel, Improvement. Uh, There are actually similarities, uh, especially on the surface level, between the two books. Like Sing Unburied Sing, Improvement opens with the story of a young mother whose boyfriend is in prison on a minor drug offense. Uh, When the book opens, um, she's going to see him. So all of that kind of has um, an an overlap with the Jasmine Ward. Um, They are very different books, though. Silber, throughout her career, she's often been compared to Alice Monroe, and this book really evokes Alice Monroe in her tone, which is clear and direct and understated, maybe a little bit wry, but also it evokes Alice Monroe in its centrifugal effect. Um, the story just keeps spiraling outward, um, wider and wider in a way that can be a little bit disorienting um, and kind of giddy. It's the very opposite of self-contained. It just gives the sense that everything is connected in uh, more than an abstract or theoretical way. This is very much a novel about culture clashes. The the um, young mother and her boyfriend are another interracial couple, as as in Jasmine Ward. Um, it's, it's a book that's partly about the impulse to know another culture, um, but also kind of the deep immersion that that requires and the risk of doing it only superficially. Hmm. Also, another overlap with the the Jasmine Ward is, like Sing Unburied Sing, the extended family really plays a role here, too. Silber goes deep, especially in the, the second section of the book, into 
the backstory of the main character's aunt, um, who spent almost a decade living in Turkey. And so it kind of goes into that and how those stories intersect. John, what are you reading? Uh, I'm reading two very slim but powerful books. One is incredibly slim. <laughs> it's <laughs> pamphlet. pamphlet size. It's about, let's see, it's a small paperback and it is literally 60 pages long. <laughs> we have online, uh, as of today and in the paper this weekend, our critics, our three daily book critics, favorite books of the year. And Parl Sagal, our old podcast buddy, included on her list. This book that had kind of escaped my notice when the book review covered it a few weeks ago called These Possible Lives by a, a woman named Fleur Jaggy. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's Her last name is J-A-E-G-G-Y. I believe she's Swiss and Italian. And this is a, a book of three very brief, highly condensed sort of biographies of three writers, Thomas de Quincey, John Keats, the poet, and a writer who I hadn't heard of before, Marcel Schwab, who I think is a, a French, um, maybe magical realist. These are just very lovely, elliptical, and kind of obviously they take some liberties in condensing these lives because each one is about 20 pages long and short pages. Um, but they're very lovely, and I'm, I'm glad that Parle uh, brought them to my attention again. And then the other book, I'm continuing sort of catching up with some of the early Cormac McCarthy books that I hadn't read before. And I, I know I mentioned The Orchard Keeper a couple of weeks ago, which is a book that I spent half the time, I think, just trying to figure out what was going on. It's a very, <laughs> very dislocating, confusing book the way it's told. This week I read Child of God, which I have to say is I, I really enjoyed is probably the wrong word. I'm, I'm a McCarthy fan. It is the darkest, most gruesome thing I've maybe ever read or seen. More than Blood Meridian or uh, Well, I have to reread or... Blood Meridian. Okay. I mean, those are grim, obviously. But this is just about this character in Tennessee, a guy who sort of lives outside the bounds of society. And he murders people. He does other stuff. And it's just unimaginable he murders thing. people he does <laughs> other <laughs> stuff well, I let's feel put like that's a really good like well let's put it this way murdering <laughs> people <resume>. yeah <laughs> I, I almost feel like you can Skills. say legitimately that murdering people is not the worst thing he does <laughs> that's how dark this book is um, but it's it's short I got through it pretty quickly it doesn't feel like seasonal reading but I'm committed to this so I'll be coming back with more darkness from McCarthy before wow too so long, what's your probably. next McCarthy What's your um, I think the next one is going to be Outer Dark, which was, this was his third book. The Orchard Keeper was his first. I couldn't find Outer Dark in between. So I'm going to go buy that and, and start in on that. So you're you're wow. going to go chronologically through his entire Yeah. Well, I've read a lot of the, starting with Blood Meridian, I think I've read Everything But No Country for Old Men. But I, yeah, so. Jen? So I am reading this book called Misogyny, The World's Oldest Prejudice by Jack Holland. And I picked it up, I guess, apropos of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Some stuff. Um, in any case, actually, one of the books that I read earlier this year that I really liked called The Age of Anger by Pankaj Mishra, who was a bookends columnist for the book review. I think in an interview somewhere he had mentioned that one of the things that he was had been trying to find when he was researching his book was a feminist history. And he was having a hard time finding something that he could use for his um Research And I found a copy of this book, which was published, I think, originally it was intended to be published about 10 years ago, but the author died right after handing the manuscript to his publisher. And then, according to the introduction written by the daughter, one of the publishers said that they just couldn't publish it. And so finally... It was published eventually. Who, who it's, is the author? The author is—so his name is Jack Holland. He apparently wrote a lot about Northern Ireland. He's an Irish writer, I believe, although I think he might have lived for a time in the United States. The subject, I think, is a great and worthy one. There's a lot of interesting facts in it. He's a very lucid writer. And I was trying to figure out what my problem with the book was, and I think it partly has to do with the fact that it's— and I mean, maybe understandable for the subject is just sort of unrelenting. He starts in 8th century BCE with the myth of Pandora and then takes it up to the present day. For that reason, at a certain point, you just sort of feel like, okay, so they still hated women. <laughs> um, it's been 3,000 years. <laughs> and I mean, I will say that it's very much, it's, it's extremely accessible. I mean, he sort of runs through 3,000 years of history. He's, he's trying to present the highlights, if you will. Um, <laughs> They're lowlights. <laughs> or lowlights. When tackling a subject like this, and I was trying to think, you know, like a book like The Second Sex, I think in a way, even though it's much larger, mm -hmm. 
it's in a way more readable. I don't really know why. I mean, he does make this very good point, though, but he makes it again and again and again, (laughs) which is essentially that women throughout history have been placed into this double bind where, on the one hand, you know, during the time of, say, the Enlightenment or the Greeks, that women were very much associated with nature and procreation, and so they were considered lesser on that score because it was something that people at the time wanted to escape. And then during times when civilization was considered suspect, women were associated with civilization. So just no matter what women were associated with, we couldn't win, essentially. (laughs) So there, there is stuff in this book that's definitely worthy. It's just kind of hard to read, especially near the end where we're up to the present day or close to the present day and... Uh, if only he were alive. I know. Right, exactly. What we would he say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pamela, you've got um, a cool bookmark there. I yes, I, I have a very old, uh, well-used Hatchard's bookmark from my favorite bookstore in London, um, and so I I keep it in circulation despite obvious abuse evident. I'm reading Ben McIntyre's book, Operation Mincemeat, with a great subtitle, which is How a Dead Man and a Bizarre Plan Fooled the Nazis and Assured an Allied Victory. I was in the mood for some uplift and just really good storytelling. Anyone who has read Ben McIntyre, he's a British writer who does these great sort of narrative nonfiction books about spies, essentially, a Cold War and World War II era spies. So he did Agent Zigzag and The Man Who Would Be King and The Englishman's Daughter and A Spy Among Friends, among other books. Um, And this one is just trademark McIntyre. You've read this, John. I have, and I've read Agent Zigzag, which starts incredibly. I mean, it just has such great stories in it. He's a genius, I think, at what he does, which is synthesizing these stories and telling them like stories rather than like history. It's just Yeah, but the history is in there, which is is great, too. You know, and he goes on these excellent tangents, you know, even in telling. So so I'm still toward the beginning of this book, but basically uh, a bunch of guys sort of in a a cramped little secret chamber hatching spies and counter-espionage schemes come up with this idea of planting a dead man in the ocean off the coast of Spain in order to mislead the Nazis into thinking that the Allied forces are not going to attack via Sicily in 1943, which was the obvious route into Europe because of sort of perceived weaknesses with Mussolini there, but instead to go through the sort of larger attack scheme elsewhere on the southern coast of the continent, Turkey and Spain. And it's great because he talks about the guys who are working in counter Espionage. And we all know that, you know, some of the great spy novelists are former spies. But these guys are all in the room. You know, it's it's like Ian Fleming and, and <laughs> you know, obviously there's Graham Greene and John le Carré and, and then a bunch of others who've written books that have, you know, are forgotten to the winds of time, but who are prolific novelists. And so it's this great sort of lens into the way in which spying um, is about creating stories and counter-espionage about creating these stories in the same way that, you know, novelists create stories. So they they come up with this idea and they find that the first challenge is to find a dead guy that they can use, which, you know, isn't, they're just not bodies lying around that you can just be like, oh, I'm taking this sort of, you know, for the greater good and I hope you don't mind, but this is what we're (laughs) going to do. Uh, We're going to drop him from an airplane into the ocean. And then now we're in a part where he's weaving in the kind of the science of pathology at that time Mm -hmm. and where it stood. And once they invent this guy who is the, the person, this dead person is supposed to be, they come up with a whole backstory, you know, they're like, well, he liked fly fishing and, you know, and they, they his dad did X, Y, and Z and they fabricate an entire life for him. Mm. So, so that's a lot of fun. tiny moment in this fake plan. Yes. In a big yes. war. Yeah. yeah. So that book again is Operation Mincemeat by Ben McIntyre. And so far I recommend it. Yeah. If you haven't read Ben McIntyre, read Ben McIntyre. Right. Read any Ben McIntyre. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Pamela. you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.